been a long break, but we are back in Ephesians. So would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? And we are going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. If I were to put in a word, share a concept of what the book of Ephesians is about, one that I could surely say is it is about the body of Christ. What it means, though, more than that is more than just Christians belonging to Jesus as part of that body, but in the book of Ephesians, literally, the body of Christ is the body of Christ. Jesus came to earth 2,000 plus years ago, the exact representation of God the Father, the manifestation of God in human form, and he communicated to people who God was, what God the Father was like. And now the church, the body of Christ, us, we are the manifestation of those very things. Question, how are we to function as that body? We spent weeks talking about one of the keys for a church to function as a body of Christ as Jesus intended to. And simply put, we need to be in fellowship with one another. We need to be in unity. We need to live out and practice the one another passages. We need to be in unity. In, in, in fact, we talked about some of those one another passages. Bottom line, I need you and you need me. Things like receive one another, love one another, accept one another, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another. Called koinonia. But there is another vital function of the church that brings about the fullness of who Jesus Christ is to the world. And I'm talking about as we engage in ministry, functioning as believers, you and I, in the body. And Paul is going to move us into that dimension of the body of Christ as we move into this text. Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe." It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 7 again, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. 
I want to touch on this word grace just real briefly and how Paul uses it here in this context. I think for me, one of the simplest definitions of, of grace that I learned not long after I became a follower of Christ is this. Grace is getting something or receiving something that I don't deserve. Grace is getting something that I don't deserve, like a gift. Now, in that context of being a Christian, we most often connect to the gift of salvation. It was freely given to me. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. All I can do is receive it. But there is more to grace, specifically the grace of God, than that. We find an example of this in Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What I want you to enter into is not just God giving us something, but rather the giving up or the offering of himself. Through his Son, by the Spirit, he puts in us his life. He grants us his kingdom. And he gives us an inheritance, these riches of his, that, all of that is part of the gospel. What's his character? He gives and he gives and he gives, and that, beloved, is grace. What I want you to realize is that God really enjoys giving things to his people. Giving is at the very core of his nature. So I'm not surprised as we come to verse 7 that we find that he gives something more. He gives gifts. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. New American Standard puts it this way, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. English Standard Version. (coughs) But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, as we begin to dig into this text, if you came here a little sleepy this morning, you're going to struggle. I think we're hard-pressed to find any of the epistles easy to enter into. Unlike a, a narrative, a story that you can kind of enter into that story and follow along, but epistles are thick pieces of meat, spiritually speaking, that require processing and thinking and digging into. And I am inviting you and I am pleading with you that you will work with me this morning. Are you ready? If it helps you to pay attention by doodling, taking notes or something, please do so. Pretend to be doing something on your phone, like notes or something, or actually using your phone for notes. This text, from verse 7 to 11, basically breaks down into three parts, because that's what pastors learn. You always break things down into three parts. First, Paul talks about the gift of Christ to the individual believer. That's verse 7. Second piece is Christ's gift to the church. That's found in verse 11. Christ's gift to the church are people who fulfill the functions of those listed there, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. There's a third part, however, that Paul interjects right in the middle, 
And when he does there, he explains how Christ, if you will, earned the right to give these gifts. That's verses 8 through 10. Let's get started. Point number one, the gift of Christ to individual believers, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, or according to the measure of Christ's gift. First thing I want you to notice in these, uh, is these gifts have been given to each one. To every one of us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've received Jesus Christ into your heart, there are certain things that you gain whether you like it or not. Case in point, everything that we learn in Ephesians 1 through 3 is given to you. If you are in Christ, you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, purchased out of the marketplace into the kingdom of his son. You've been adopted. You've been given all the rights and privileges of full sonship. You've been given an inheritance. You've been forgiven, sealed by the Holy Spirit, just to name a few. All of those and so much more are true of you if you are in Christ. They're yours. To each one, no one has been left out. No one has been cheated. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it or, again, according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want you to notice something else. A very significant word in is the word measure or apportioned. I want you to notice this word in the, in the Greek. This is, where the, is the word metron, which is where we get our word metric or meter. It simply has to do with quantity. In other words, each one, every believer, has a measured out gift from Christ. Each believer has a measured out gift from Christ, a certain quantity, a certain definition, certain limitations, certain parameters, certain capabilities. No one's been left out. I want you to notice something else about the gift of Christ to individuals is that in the Greek, this word is not in the plural, but singular. That is, in this context, Paul is talking about the gift. A gift. However, within that gift, there's a multiplicity of God expressing himself through you, through me, in marvelous, wonderful ways. We're all gifted. More on that later. The point is that every believer has received a gift, the gift, expressed in many different ways. Listen, the beauty of the body of Christ, the beauty of what Christ did when he gave you and me the gift is he blended the categories of giftedness in you and me. How you're wired is different than other people in this room. How I'm wired is different than other people in this room. But we need each other collectively because we no individual has all of the gifts, Right? That means 
that if God, God has called you to be part of Dover, that you can't, you can't come and be part of this church and simply, if you will, sit on your hands. You can't hold these gifts to yourself. That's just not good stewardship. He's given you these things to use to build up the body and to further the kingdom. You need to express your giftedness if you don't. Not only does the body of Christ lose, but you lose. Because you will not experience, you will not develop and be the person that Christ has called you to be unless you are engaged in using your gifts. The problem is that many Christians act like Christianity is a spectator sport. Is that a fair statement? We come, we sit, we watch, we leave. And that simply cannot be if the church is to be the kind of church that Christ intended us, called us to be. I want to tell you, I'm incredibly proud of so many of you who don't sit on your hands in a ministry context. You're engaged in serving and in mission. You're doing your part as God's called you to help Dover Church fulfill what God has called us to be and do. Whether that's serving in Awana or facilitating a small group, serving in mops, providing care for people, visiting people, discipling people, engaging in some ministry contacts. We need each other. I think most of you know, I don't, I'm not aware of anybody who holds this against me, but I think most of you know that I'm from Minnesota. As such, I still follow all the Minnesota sports teams. Two years ago, not long after the college football season ended, the University of Minnesota hired P.J. Fleck as their new football coach. He was known as and has proven himself to be a great recruiter, a great motivator, but what's really caught people's attention is how hard he has worked to not just get his athletes to buy into his program, but rather to get the entire school to buy into not just the the football program, but what the whole school is about. One of the tools that he uses to accomplish this uh, in a myriad of ways is a slogan, row the boat. Row the boat. And, and in fact, whenever he goes and recruits somebody, one of the things that he brings with them and gives to a, a potential athlete is an oar with University of Minnesota emblazed on it and row the boat and all of that. But in simple terms, what it is is a call for everyone, the whole university, to pull their own weight. I need to play a part if we're going to fulfill what God's called me to do. I need to do my part, put my oar in the water, and pull everyone in the same direction in order to achieve what God has called us to. 
you've experienced it, it is no help at all. If lots of people have oars, you're in a boat and everybody's trying to paddle a different way. Not a lot of impact, not a lot of movement, a lot of activity. Not much kingdom advancement. To me, that idea of everybody doing their part to row the boat is a great picture of what the church looks like when it is the church. Let's keep going. And I'm going to have to ask somebody, perhaps my brother in the back, would you go to the kitchen and get another bottle of water? Because I am not going to make it. Thank you. Something else about uh, this gift moved me. This giftedness is a gift of God's grace. This giftedness is a gift of God's grace. Have you ever thought of this? Every category of the gifts that you could possibly name is perfectly illustrated in Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. If there was ever a preacher, it was Jesus, right? If there was ever a teacher, it was Christ. If there was ever a leader, it was Christ. If there was ever a servant in the whole world, it was Jesus. If there was ever one who knew how to give, who had the gift of giving, it was Christ, right? Perfect illustration of every category of giftedness. He had them all. Blended together perfectly in perfect man, perfect God. Now with that truth in mind, understand when Christ gives you the gift, you know what he's doing? Listen, he's giving you himself. He's giving you himself. I hope you're able to grab onto some of that because that is the foundation where we're going to build even over the next couple of weeks. Point number one, verse seven. Christ gives a gift to every individual believer. That gift is himself. To live in and through you. Point number two, Christ's gift to the church are individual people. Verse 11, he has gifted the church with individual people. He has gifted the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We're going to unpack that next week in great detail. So I want you to lay that aside for a minute. And we're going to move on to verses 7 through 11. Thank you. I know, you're all going to want some. Verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians 4 is an exposition by the Apostle Paul of Psalm 68, verse 18. Verse 8. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts 
to his people. New American Standard, he led captive a host of captives. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. In Psalm 68, there's a picture developed of God as the conquering hero. In verse 1 of, verse of, of Psalm 68, God sets out to do battle against his enemy. And God wins the battle, as he always does. And as the psalm progresses, the war has been won. God is returning victorious. He begins to ascend Mount Zion, and, and he has with him all the spoils of war, including those captives that he has taken and is bringing with him. Now, perhaps you knew this, how in history, often, when one returned victorious from battle, there would be a parade, led by the conquering king, the conquering general. And coming behind him would be the spoils of war, all these treasures, literally a parade through the streets. And here's all the stuff that we took, which we all get to share in, but also following behind him would be people that he had conquered, that he had taken captive. The picture here, the conquering hero, the victor, the spoils of war on one hand, and those people who have been captured on the other hand. However, during my study this past week, I discovered something new, at least for me. There were at least two kinds or groups of captives. One group made up of all the people of the enemy that he would have captured in this battle. And the king would bring these enemies bound behind him and everyone would rejoice because their enemy had been bound. But there's a second group of people very often in war. As the king would go to battle and there'd be multiple battles back and forth, in some of those battles the king would lose some of his people. Some of his people would be captured. So when an ultimate victory was done, when he overcame his adversary, he would go to that country and rescue out of that country all of his own people who had been held in captivity. And he would set them free, the prisoners of war. And he'd bring them back to his own people who had, they had been held captive, but they are part of this whole host of captives. Can you picture this parade? Now Paul knew this, the Ephesians knew this. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this picture to illustrate a spiritual truth that they needed to know that we need to know. Paul says this this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? Verse 10 again, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fulfill, in order to fill the whole universe. The context of Ephesians 4 clearly tells us that Paul is referring to Christ 
the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and then through the resurrection and ascension. Now, early on, I said you're going to have to do some work with me, some heavy lifting, and here's where it really begins. I hope you're ready. Again, the third point we're in right now is how Christ earned the right to give gifts. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 helps us out to even get this context here. It says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. Now stop right there. Where are we right now in that verse? Jesus is on the cross. He's, his body has died. But as you continue into verse 18, it says, he's been made alive by the Spirit. What happens next? tells us right here, verse 19, and he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. You know what happened to him? What did Jesus do? What happened to him in these three days as his body lay in the tomb before the resurrection? He physically died. His body is placed in the tomb, but his spirit is alive. His inner man is alive. What happened? Ephesians 4.10, he descended. Then it says here in 1 Peter 3.19 that he went and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What is that? Let me try to explain and if I was doing a Sunday school class, I'd unpack all the sides of this because there's a lot of discussion about what this means. I'm not going to unpack it for you. I'm just going to give you my conclusion in that context, okay? It says he went to the lower earthly regions. He went into the lower parts of the earth. What does that mean? Most scholars believe that both Paul and Peter here are referring to Hades, not hell, Hades. Why did he go there? Says that he preached. All right, take a step back for a minute. In the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, the word used to describe the realm of the dead is Sheol. Simply means the place of the dead, the place of the de departed souls, spirits. New Testament Greek equivalent of Sheol is Hades, which is also a general reference to the place of the dead. Just pretend you're with me and nod your head. It'll just make me feel better. Now, as far as our study this morning, we know that Jesus Christ went into the lower parts of the earth, Ephesians 4.9. That is to Sheol, to Hades, into the heart of the earth. Three days and nights while his body was in the grave. Jesus actually foretold this event. Matthew 12, verse 40. He says, 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When the Lord Jesus said that, he was saying that he would spend some time between his death and resurrection in, I believe, Sheol or Hades. But what did he do there? What happened? Well, one of the things that happened there, according to 1 Peter 3.19, is that he went and preached, made proclamation. Understand, this is not a salvation message. This is not a second chance for the unrighteous. Hebrews 9.27 tells us people are destined once to die and after that face the judgment. What we have here is a time of proclamation. I want you to catch this. Jesus dies. His spirit descended into Hades. He proclaimed victory to the evil spirits, the unrighteous incarcerated there, and then he ascends, he leads this victory procession, which includes a defeated foe, spoils of victory, and those who had been rescued. You see, not only did he make proclamation of his victory over sin and death, but he proved it by taking the keys of death and hell, part of the spoils of war. Even Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forevermore. Proof, I have the keys to death and Hades. It's part of the spoils of war. He made proclamation, I believe, to the demonic realm, maybe to Satan himself. And in my mind's eye, I imagine it's something like this. You saw the cross, and to you, I looked like a loser. But what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good news. He made proclamation. What looked like defeat was really victory. He made proclamation. The battle's done. The victory's won. Death has been swallowed up in victory, and you lose. If you think I'm stretching this a little bit, then I give you Colossians 2, verse 15. Again, Paul, same writer. Colossians 2.15, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Made a public spectacle of them. Do you see the parade now? Watch. Christ goes to the cross, and what he... And what he did was he entered into this awesome battle with Satan, with sin, with death. In that battle, he looked like a loser, but he won. And now, here he comes, Jesus Christ, the conquering hero, ascending the hill of victory. And just like in Psalms 68, he's got two things with him. Do you remember what they are? He's got two things with him. One, the spoils of war that are rightfully his because the war has been won like the keys. And another thing that he's got with him are captives that have been set free. 
release to liberty as sons and daughters of God. The redeemed, you and me, are part of this victory parade. Kind of unpacks for me what is going on here in Ephesians in this context of what Paul is using in these verses. Because not only is the spoils of war that battle that Jesus has won, you know what else he has? Gifts. Because just like that conquering hero, here's the spoils of war and he gives things away to the people to encourage them and to meet their needs. And he comes and he gives gifts. He gives even people as gifts to his church. The spoils of war, verse 8, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And here's the key. The gifts, the gifts are for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. That is the whole context of what's going on here. He gave these gifts to build up the church. I hope that the cross of Christ becomes a little bigger for us this morning. When Christ died, he died on the cross to save you, redeem you. Yes, but you know what else he did? He died on the cross so that he could enable you, empower you, give you gifts to serve. The price he paid for redemption is the same price that he paid to grant you the gift. The gift. You think it's important to serve? He died so you could serve. Man, I, I hope if I could sit with each one of you. You get an email about a need to serve in ministry. You have somebody stand up in front and say, hey, we need help with this or help with that. This isn't just Pastor Tim whining about some hole we got. You've been gifted for this, called to this, equipped to this. It is his expectation of every one of us. And if I don't, if I'm not engaged in ministry, giving away what he's given me to, I suffer. And so does the rest of the body. Do you think it's important to use your gift? I'm not even telling you to take some spiritual gifts inventory. I'm calling you to serve. Every one of us. Every one of us. You've got the gift, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have all the riches of heaven. You have the Holy Spirit empowering and indwelling you. There is nothing that he would call you to do that you can't do. 
Yes, you may have to overcome fear. You may have to come inhibitions. You may need to be equipped. You may need the body to come alongside of you, encourage you, bless you, give away to you so that you can function well. But we have no excuse that would hold up before him of why I can't. Open the box. What is the gift that he's given to you? Open the box and start to use it. I've, I've already explained and, and illustrated how there were two kinds of groups, two kinds of captives, the defeated enemies and his people who were captive but are now set free. But there are two kinds of gifts as well. The first kind of gift that he bestows or showers upon the church are gifts that he gives to individuals. But there's another kind of gift that he gives to the church. It's simply this, specific people to fulfill certain roles and functions in the church. He's called some to be evangelists, for example. I'm not talking about Billy Graham, though it could be a Billy Graham. But if you've ever wondered why you might have a bent toward the loss and it's just always aching there, if you have an ache, a desire, uh, an ability to, to teach, we're going to learn the prophet in this context is not the Old Testament prophet. It's the person who has truth and, and wants to call people to it. God has something more for your life. The prophet generally does not have the, mis- the gift of mercy. We have other people that have that function. That's where we're going to pick up next time. Hope you got half of it. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? In the context of church leadership as a pastor, it's this weird place because unless I come to know you well, Unless I come to know you well, I don't really know what gifting and enabling that the Holy Spirit has given to you. But there are other people who do know you well. So when we make a call to, hey, we have some holes to fill in children's ministry, for example. I trust you all got Jen's email. I don't know who you are. The challenge is people also need to be asked, to be invited, because maybe, wow, you you see that in me? Yeah, I want to call it out of you. But I don't necessarily know everyone. So let's call it out of each other. Speak into one another's lives. Hey, I see this in you. 
I believe in you. Oh, I couldn't do that. No, you may not. I'm not asking you to do it right now, but partner up. Lock shields with somebody. Let somebody speak in your life and pour them into you so that you can be raised up to make a difference. I would love the opportunity to receive 150 emails. Well, some of you are already way engaged, so lots of emails or a text message. It just said, Pastor Tim, I'm in. I'd have no idea what that means. And after a brief conversation, the first thing I want to do is say, who in the church knows you well? Let's get together with them and start praying and talking. Because we're all called to serve. And granted, I know and I understand that that may be not necessarily in ministry here, but as an extension of ministry. It's part of the kingdom. But it's not okay to do nothing. It's not okay. I'm whipped. Joel, would you come up and pray for us and send us out?